Um, in case you care, the third is actually in Thailand now. Um, he's teaching at a Christian school there. The fourth one um, used to be in China um, as a missionary, um, but China has kind of changed to their friendliness to Americans. So it's kind of hard for Americans to get back in. So now he is um, an assistant pastor in Flint. Um, he would like to go back to China, but he's kind of waiting for the Lord to open that door. And then the other two are here in the Detroit area. Um, but praise God for, um, for churches, for local churches that minister to people. Because my dad um, is an engineer at General Motors and then American Axle Manufacturing his whole life. He's not a preacher. Um, he was a Sunday school teacher for a bit. Um, but God used um, the church in our family um, to, I mean, for what I am today is all of God's glory but it is a testament to the men and women that the church influenced in my life. So this is actually a, a lesson that I put together um, a while ago, um, and I put this PowerPoint together for our high school chapel. I teach at the Christian school there in Troy, and I put this together, and then I was going to use this at, um, so I was going to present this on a Sunday night at Troy, and the computer didn't work. So I put it all together, and technology, you know, just fails. So we'll see if it works today. Um, the Power of the Tongue, James chapter 3. James is a favorite book for many Christians because it is basically a picture book without pictures. You know, James uses all these descriptions of the things that he's trying to teach. Um, we're going to read through James chapter 3 here, but this is one of the things that James uses when he's teaching about the power of the tongue. He uses all of these word pictures. He describes in, in great detail the dangers and the power of the tongue. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open to James chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. James starts out by saying, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Um, so this is kind of a side note for me because I'm not going to focus on this um, because I'm the one up here teaching and not you. But an admonition that I have for you is it, it, it would be good for you to teach the Bible. But it's a warning here because there is a stricter judgment for teachers. And I've thought through this and every time I get up to preach or teach, um, there's always a little bit of fear in the back of my mind um, because there are plenty of false teachers out in the world, some of them intentional, and some of them just self-deceived. I don't know if you've ever read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where there's these individuals who are standing before the Lord, and they're saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty miracles in your name? And do you remember what Jesus says to them? Depart from me, I, I never knew you. It wasn't that he knew them then they, they had departed, but they had, done all, they had lived this life of what they thought was discipleship and service, but it was never real. Um, so it, it, I just say this more as a warning to myself, but this is what James says to each of us, to beware if, you are, if God has called you to teach someone, and I hope that he has, but be careful that what you're teaching is the truth. So the, the theme of the lesson that I have for you this morning as we're going to read through James chapter 3 here is beware of the power of the tongue. 
Beware of the power of the tongue. In the summer of 1997, and that seems like such a long time ago now, when I was 14, my family and I took a trip to Virginia to visit my aunt and uncle and their family. Um, my uncle was in the Navy, and he took us to see the USS Enterprise. Um, oh, no, not that one. Um, this one. Um, it has since been retired. The USS Enterprise, um, technically known as CVN-65, was commissioned in 1961. Um, I was reading about it last night, and this was one of the ships that was um, sent to Vietnam. You've probably seen pictures or video of the helicopters pulling people out of Saigon. And this is one of the ships that they took them to. Um, this was a ship that I was able to go on, and we walked up the gangplank to the door, and they said, sorry, we're not doing tours today, but my uncle was in the Navy, and I don't know who he talked to or what he did, but we got a personal tour where they called somebody down, and we got to walk through the entire ship. We got to walk up on the, the flight deck there. Um, we were told about how they have steel beach picnics up there um, because it's massive. Um, it's, it was the world's first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. Um, it is the eighth ship to bear the name Enterprise. There's another, this one's been decommissioned. There's another um, Enterprise now. Um, this ship had eight nuclear reactors, more than 200,000 horsepower. The max speed was only about 35 miles an hour, though. <laughs> this was because it, when it was fully loaded, it displaced about 90,000 tons. 140 tons of those were the four rudders. So it took four rudders to move this ship, each weighing about 35 tons. These four massive rudders made up less than two-tenths of a percent of the overall mass of the ship. And this is what James is going to start with here. Let me go back to uh, my notes here. Verse, um, verse 2 of James chapter 3. Let's read this together. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the horse's mouths so that they may obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. Does a spring pour forth the, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I was talking to you about the... Uh, the rudders of that ship, that giant aircraft carry, and how small the rudders are and compared to the ship, um, it's about the same ratio as the tongue is to our human body. I just thought that was interesting. I don't think that James was intending that to be the case. 
Um, but for a 160-pound man, um, one quarter of a pound the human tongue, <laughs> um, it's relatively the same comparison to the size of a rudder's, the rudder of a ship to the overall mass of the ship. Here, James exhorts believers about the power of the tongue. And obviously, it's not the muscle itself that has this great power, but it's the words that are formed. In verse 2, um, the word stumbles there, it's the same as in chapter 2, verse 10. It refers to making a mistake or even sinning. And being in this church, I'm sure you're very familiar with Romans chapter 3. And I often ask my uh, students, how many of us are sinners? Which, of course, the answer is all of us. How many of us are righteous? Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. So you and I know that there's no one perfect. So then we might try to give excuses that, well, no one's perfect, so then why does it matter? James has already mentioned the tongue in chapter 1 in regard to true religion. He said that if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his own tongue, he deceives his own heart, and the man's religion is worthless. But here he says someone who is able to bridle the tongue is able to bridle the whole body as well. One of the things that teachers train small children to do is sit still and be quiet. So I told you I teach at the Christian school there at um, First Baptist of Troy. Um, last year, my wife taught first grade. Um, there is such a difference between the first day of school and the last day of school with these first graders. So I was in the classroom a lot because my wife was the teacher. But you know, the first day of first grade, so in, they go through kindergarten, and that's a big change as well. I mean, they do a lot of maturing in kindergarten. But, but at our school, kindergarten is only half a day. Whereas in first grade, you know, they've got to go from 7.50 in the morning all the way to 3 o'clock. And especially that first week of school, by the end of the day, she was literally having students falling asleep on their desks because it was so much for them. And you know how you behave when you're tired. You just think of, you know, six-year-olds when they're tired. So we teach children to control themselves, to sit still, to follow instructions. We as adults are along that same process, and yet how often our tongues are unbridled. How often our tongues just say whatever the first thing that comes to our mind. I mean, how many of us have ever said something, and immediately after the words left our mouth, we knew it was wrong? You know, it was almost like we wish we could grab it and pull it back because it was so biting and it was so hurtful. And often I found that the ones that we snap at like that are often the ones that we love the most. Right? It's the people within our own family. It's hard to control our words. Here in chapter 3, James exhorts believers to beware the power of the tongue. The first thing to note here I have three ideas for you to consider. The first one, and these all, I think, come from this chapter, is that the tongue has great influence. Great influence. And the first illustration he uses is of a bit in a horse's mouth. Um, now, I am not an equestrian. I have ridden a horse a few times. I recognize that that is a bit. But I realized my ignorance when I did this lesson and then I went to do this PowerPoint. I would not have known my ignorance if not for this PowerPoint because I went to Google and I searched for bit, you know, horse, mouth, whatever. 
and then I got all of these pictures, you know, hundreds of different shapes and styles, and I had no idea there were so many different kinds of bits. I didn't even know what I didn't know. I still don't know anything about it other than that I'm clueless. I, I just recognize I am ignorant in regard to all of the different kinds of bits and what they do. What I do know is the purpose of the bit. That the horse, and James says this, that the horses are, are large, strong, powerful animals. And yet, you know, the bit is so small, you fit it into their mouth, underneath their tongue, and then you're able to direct them and give them instruction. In the reading that I did, um, the, the largest horse on record was probably um, this horse named Mammoth. He was a Shire horse in England back in 1848. Um, it was recorded that he stood over 21 hands high, um, which apparently is 7 feet. So I'm assuming that's where his back was, not the top of his head. He weighed more than a ton and a half. It was a very large animal. But as you can see, even that large of an animal, they're able to control how can we control something so large with something so small? And, in case you care, um, the smallest horses today, they're only about 17 inches high. They weigh only about 57 pounds, these little miniature horses that you could just pick up and carry around with you. The point, though, is that something so small has enormous influence on something of great power. I mentioned to you the, the ship that I got to go in and um, take a tour of, you can actually go um, to Bay City. There's a battleship there um, that I took uh, some students about a year ago um, to go and tour, and you can go and tour. It's a floating museum now. It was interesting as I, I read about that battleship, we went and toured it, not nearly as big as an aircraft carrier, but it's still really interesting to go through the engine room and go up on the deck that they had to get special permission to get it to Bay City because Canada and the U.S. have a treaty that says that there will be no battleships um, going through um, the Great Lakes and through the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway. So to, even though it was decommissioned and it was, had you know, the guns were disabled and everything, they still had to get special permission from both governments to float it, um, have it towed to Bay City. But these small things have great influence. So when I prepared this, this is a map of um, 16 in John R. So I don't know if you're familiar with a uh, map. So this is John R. here, and this is 16 Mile. Um, this is um, First Baptist Church of Troy right here. This is Bethany Christian School. Um, this is where I teach. This is our baseball diamond. This is our soccer field here. So I was doing this to give uh, my students an idea of how big this battleship is. Um, so this is... Uh, on the corner, there's a uh, pharmacy here, CVS. So the aircraft carrier um, is 1,100 feet long, which is about that same distance. So I don't know if you're familiar with that corner. Um, Braden probably is, because he goes to school there every day. But it's just massive. I, I mean, I've walked this length before. And just to think how big this ship, I mean, this is one ship controlled you know, by these engines and these rudders, one guy at the wheel, you know, tur turns this massive thing. And James says, this is what our tongue is like. Oh, here, Let's see if it's illustrated. There you go. So this is just to illustrate how big it is. Massive influence. And you know these truths. Some of you could probably get up here and teach this lesson because you've studied James 3 before. But how often do we forget 
you know, we sat at breakfast this morning with our kids. <laughs> and, and the cereal that this one wanted, this one emptied the box into his bowl. <laughs> so then this one <laughs> expresses displeasure with this one. And then this one <laughs> gets frustrated with both of them. The words that we ha say have tremendous influence because the way that I respond to my sons is going to make an impact on today and then my pattern every morning is going to make an influence on them for their lives. So this morning may we remind ourselves and be reminded that the tongue has great influence so that we might direct each other to doing what is right. So I, I opened with telling you about my siblings a little bit. And my father never and my mother never tried to twist our arms or force us into some kind of ministry. It wasn't something that, I mean, I'm sure they prayed for it and they might have mentioned it as good things to do. I mean, they had us at church every time the doors were open. But I think it was the words that they said regarding the scriptures that began to steer our lives. Our tongues have great influence. May we consider that this morning. But it's not just great influence because here in chapter 3, starting in verse 5, there's also great iniquity, great sin. James says great poison. He says, even though the tongue is a small member, it begins to boast of great things. So I'm actually going to be preaching tonight at Troy as well. And this is one of the things that, that's going to come up in my message is about um, immodesty of speech. That often we speak in such a way as to draw the attention to ourselves. James says here in verse 5 that that kind of boasting is like a match set to a dry forest. He says, uh, how great a forest to set a fire with such a small fire. Um, you, you all know Smokey Bear, right? Only you can prevent forest fires. Nine out of ten forest fires are caused by humans. Things like improperly extinguished campfires, cigarettes, and other things I've tried to teach my boys. Um, I didn't realize this until later in life when I was making campfires for myself instead of my dad doing it. But how long after you let the fire burn out that it's still hot? This is why the instructions are you pour water on it, you stir it around, you pour water on it, stir it around, and then feel to make sure it's cool. And because, um, I don't remember how many years ago this was, but I went to our men's retreat up at Camp Kobiak. I don't know if you've ever been there. But it's a Christian camp in um, northern Michigan. And some guys had a, um, a fire the night before, and then they went off and were doing whatever, and I was just walking past their campsite, and they had taken their logs that they had burned and just stacked them with their other ones and had left. And so this is a couple hours later. And as I was walking past, I noticed that their stack of wood was smoking. 
that it had begun to rekindle and then burn their stack of wood. So it made me think, wow, that fire is really powerful. So the next time, and actually several times since I have had campfires, we know we go to bed the next morning. I am just careful, but I rekindle the fire without any matches or starting it again. You know that fire is powerful, that just a little flame, you know, you hear about people just throwing their cigarette out and then the entire forest starts on fire. Carelessness might start a physical forest fire, but a careless word that you might give might start a spiritual forest fire. I don't know you all. I don't know this church. I mean, I know Braden probably better than any of you because I have him as a student. But from churches, I've grown up at Troy. Um, I spent six years in Ohio. The Lord allowed me to be the pastor at a church there. It was a very sweet gift from him. But I have watched how careless words have started a fire and then it just rages out of control because people fan the flames and then whether it's the pastor who has to try to put it out or other church members who try to put out the fire. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be careful because there is great iniquity in our tongues, even though we're believers. right? When I was a, a kid, I, just, I guess I just had this misconception that once we get saved, you know, we're just, you know, sanctification, progressive sanctification, we're, you know, we're getting better that that it's going to get easier as we get older, right? But then we get angry, and then the words come out. James here in verse 6 says it's the very world of iniquity, and I think the idea that he's trying to convey is that all the sins that are in the world you know, are bound up here in the tongue, that this is where they begin. These, these are the sparks that start all of those fires. Every kind of sin in the world, small or monstrous, can be started with the tongue. He says it defiles the whole body. This is patterned after what Jesus says in Mark 7, um, verse 14, where Jesus calls the crowd to him and begins to say to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And you're familiar with this because the Pharisees are, are so concerned with the externals thinking that as long as I do what's right on the outside, that I'm going to be okay with God. But Jesus is saying, no, it's what's inside that is most important, because then what's inside is what's going to come out. Well, the tongue is the thing that's going to indicate what's on the inside. The tongue is the part of us that begins these fires. Beware, because your tongue could end up destroying your life, burning it down to the ground. He says here that the fire of the tongue is the very fire of hell. This means that the power of the tongue won't simply ruin your life, it will ruin your soul. Um, not that someone who is saved could lose their salvation, that's not what he's saying, but rather the tongue is going to be that indicator, that thing that's going to reveal what's really inside. So if there really is no love of Jesus inside, that's what's going to come out. There is great iniquity. He says that, I guess I should have been paying attention, evil words are like a fire. This is a real picture. I found this several years ago. Um, this is a picture of two elk um, in the middle of a raging forest fire. So an um, individual with the U.S. Forest Service, his name was John McCloggan, on August 6, 
um, the year 2000. He was driving um, down the road mon trying to monitor the fire, drove across a bridge, and he looked across and saw these two elk. Um, it was snapped on a little digital cam camera back in the year 2000. This, um, I, somewhere I have here, the name of the forest fire. I guess I don't have it. But it was near um, the Bitterroot River in uh, Montana. Evil words are like fire, but evil words are also like poison. Um, Romans 3, verse 13 says, Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. Poison of asps is on their lips. You know, if there was a... Uh, does anyone like snakes in here? Does this bother anyone? Should I go on from this? No. You know, if there was a snake... You know, maybe I bring it in and I put a box on it and I say, you know, this is a, uh, one of the top ten deadliest snakes in the world. Um, it's some kind of cobra, and I just open the box and just set it on the floor. And I just start preaching, and I just start talking to you. You know, how many of you are going to be focused on me? <laughs> and how many of you are going to be focused when well, you see that head come out of the box, and then it slides down and starts going around the room? Why? I mean, maybe even if it wasn't a venomous snake, you might still be, be watching it. But assuming that it was one of those snakes, that the venom will kill you within hours if not treated. Why do we have such respect for it? Because we recognize the power, the power of the poison, that it could kill you, that you might not be alive tomorrow if this snake bites you. James says, this is what's in our tongue. There is this kind of poison that in a moment of anger, that you might lash out, and that venom goes in, and, and you—I mean, I don't—I don't, I don't want to pick apart the uh, the illustration too much. The idea of neurotoxins getting into your nervous system, beginning to deteriorate immediately. But in the words, you all know the the phrase "sticks and stones will break my bones; words will never hurt me." We all know it's a lie. You know, we we could right now, as we begin to think through all the things that we remember from middle school and high school times where people said something and it was like a snake bite. It just hurt. And it's never really healed. You know, we've got scars from things that people have said. If there is someone, whether they're in this room, someone in your, here in the church, someone somewhere else that you have lashed out at, you need to go to them and begin the healing process. Or else this venom might begin to tear apart your relationship and you might find that there is no life left there. Um, here the, the idea of a restless poison um, is unstable, um, just like James chapter 1 verse 8. It's similar to Romans chapter 3 verse 13, again talking about sinners, saying that their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of asps is on their lips. There is great influence and great iniquity. James has one more warning for us concerning the tongue, and that is the inconsistency. Because he's talking to believers, right? He's not trying to convince unbelievers to be careful of their tongue. He's talking to you and to me, to those who have already accepted the Lord, those who have turned from our sin. If you look at verse 9, he says, with our tongue, 
we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He says we praise God. And if you stay for the morning service, this is really the theme that I'm going to have. We're going to be looking at Psalm 8 of praising God for who He is and what He has done. And we as Christians generally are, are pretty good at that because that's what we do, right? That He's our God. So, so we're, we try to pattern our churches, our church worship, our, even our lives after praising God. But the inconsistency is we might praise God, but then we turn around and we curse others. And hopefully you're not the cursing type. Um, but I don't think he's just referring to actual curses or curse words. But the idea of inconsistency. That you know, we, we, we come to church and we sit here and, and we sing praise to God. And then afterwards we walk out the door and we grumble about the pastor. You know, the thing that he said about Whatever, and I imagine that's going to happen tonight because I have some uncomfortable things that I need to present to our church. Still trying to think through exactly how to say it. My wife is a little bit nervous, I think. <laughs> she, was ner- she was nervous last week, and I w- last week it was just, you need to be humble in heart. I mean, that's pretty, pretty benign, I thought. This week I'm going to try to get a little more practical. Yeah, we'll see. But we... Thank you. We quickly praise God, and then we just as quickly are unkind and biting to men. It's interesting to me the reason that James gives for not cursing people. Um, It's that they're made in the likeness and image of God. Um, This is an important verse. It patterns back to Genesis um, chapter 2, 1 and 2, where God makes man in his own image. And we're told that the reason that it's wrong to murder people is because they're made in God's image. The reason that it's wrong to kill is also the same reason that it's wrong to curse. Which, it fits then when you go to Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is speaking about um, the commandments. And he says, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. He says, but I say to you that you shouldn't even hate someone in your heart, hold a grudge against someone. Why is that? Right here. Because they're made in the likeness and image of God. For you to murder someone is an attack on God. Right? Satan does this all the time. Jesus refers to Satan as a liar, a murderer from the beginning. Why does Satan kill image bearers? Because he can't get to God. Right? What can Satan really do to attack God? Nothing. So then he goes after the next best thing, and those who are made in the likeness and image of God. So then why would you and I follow Satan's pattern, follow after him, and be unkind and curse in the things that we say, those who are made in the image of God? James points out this inconsistency in we believers, saying this is not the way it should be. Verse 10, that blessings and cursings come from the same mouth. And then he uses these illustrations, saying, you know, if you have the same one tree, do you get grapes and figs from the same tree? Um, I am not a horticulturist. My wife likes to garden. I know enough about um, gardening that if you have a grapevine, you're not going to get figs from it. That figs grow on a tree. Um, I've done a little bit of reading on grafting. Anyone do plants, trees, grafting? 
Um, so my wife um, has planted an orchard in our backyard. Orchard, I mean, there's like eight trees, you know. So, um, and, and they're small. This was their second year, so, so they're still kind of small. But um, someday, I would like to try grafting on her trees. I don't know if you've seen these trees that have multiple kinds of fruit. Have you seen this? Well, they'll take, you know, apple um, branches. There's a technical term for it. But they, they take these branches and they graft them onto one tree. So you've got one tree growing, but then you've got like eight different fruits growing on it. Um, I've read that you can even graft apples onto pear trees and they will grow. I don't think it works the other way around. That's not what he's going for here. <laughs> you and I all know that when you plant grapevines and you're cultivating grapevines, what are we expecting to see? Grapes. And I don't know that figs grow in Michigan. Maybe there are varieties that do. But when you're growing fig trees... You're expecting figs. So when you get something that's not what you're supposed to get, it should surprise you, and you would probably do something to change that, for instance. Um, so my dad likes pears. They're one of his favorite fruits. Um, so after um, the kids were older, like old enough that they wouldn't like break all of his stuff, um, he planted a pear tree in his backyard. Um, I think I was in college at the time. Um, so my younger brother, the youngest, was probably, you know, sixth grade. So old enough where he probably wouldn't purposefully break it. But a couple years later, plant, you know, the tree's getting big, plenty of flowers and, and, and plenty of uh, leaves. No fruit. And I go out there one day, and he's talking about it. And he's like, this, I don't understand this pear tree. Every year, you know, it's getting bigger. It's really, it looks really healthy. It gets plenty of flowers on it. Um, but the fruit, you know, these end up being these tiny little, like, nubs. Like, they don't turn into fruit. Um, as I said, I'm not a horticulturist, but my wife likes gardening, but that's because her dad does. And one of his favorite trees, he doesn't like fruit trees. He likes flowering trees. So he would line his driveway with pear trees that are flowering pear trees, not fruiting pear trees. So I said to my dad, I was like, um, Dad, I think you might have got a flowering pear, not a fruiting pear tree. Um, by the end of the summer, the tree was gone. <laughs> because when we plant something and we have one expectation of fruit and we get something different, we know that there's a problem. This is the great inconsistency. He also uses the illustration of water. Um, they didn't have water fountains. Um, obviously, we in, here in America, we're very familiar with them. But can you imagine, I don't know how many of you use this, but you come in one day and you get a drink because you're thirsty, and then the next time that you come to it, you push the button and then like brown water comes out, and you look at it like, what's wrong with this? But you're really thirsty and you kind of like taste it, but it's like salty and like grainy. And then the next time you come, you push that and it's clear, and you're looking at it and they go, uh, I don't know. And then so you taste it and it's fine this time, but then the next time it's kind of a yellowish color. And, and it's, are you going to give up on this? I mean, you're going to be bringing your own water bottle every time. Are you going to be bringing your own? Because you just never know what you're going to get. Um, we're called as Christians to be ministers to each other. And if you are the kind of Christian that n people never know what's going to come out of your mouth, 
You know, sometimes it's really encouraging and it's really helpful, but sometimes it's like the venom of snakes. You are not going to have a ministry because people aren't going to come to you and they're going to actually avoid you. James says, brothers and sisters, it should not be this way. How are you going to minister to people if they avoid you and they won't listen to you? Your tongue, your words can ruin your reputation ruin your ministry. Power of the tongue. There is great influence, great iniquity, unfortunately great inconsistency. Your words have the power to hurt, but let me just close with the idea that they also have the power to heal. And James doesn't bring this up here, but we know this from other places in Scripture and just from our own lives. Write that when someone is hurting, even if you weren't the one who did the hurting, you coming alongside them and just giving them a verse of Scripture you know, is balm to their soul. Um, and let me encourage you, just a, an admonition, do it unprompted. Um, so this was probably about two years ago. There was a friend of mine and... Um, I, I don't know, I just felt like I, I needed to encourage some people, so I started texting like a, a number of close friends uh, some verses from the Bible. And one of them texted back and said, thank you, that was very timely. I didn't know what was going on, I just wanted to be a blessing to people. Um, come to find out, um, his wife had left the faith and was in the process of divorcing him, and it was um, just uh, an awful time in his life. But he, he didn't tell me. I didn't know what was going on. But just some words that were given to him soothed his soul in the storm that he was in the middle of. So while it is important for us to learn from James here that there is you know, great power here in the tongue, it's not only power to hurt. That you and I today, as we finish up and we go from here, maybe in between services or after church, um, maybe during lunch, you could have the opportunity to heal someone's soul. The opening, I said, beware of the power of the tongue. Well, let me suggest to you to just be aware. There is great danger. Danger to hurt, but also great power to heal. Um, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be done. Dear God, I pray that we would consider our own hearts if we truly love you. And then if we truly love you, do we love others? And if we truly love others, how are we using the words that you have given to us to heal? May we be healers and not hurters. May we be aware of the power of the tongue. Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.